Hello, I'm Anna Hacker from Australian Unity and this podcast will get you thinking about what happens after you die. Sounds morbid, right? But as a lawyer, my experience has shown most of us are unprepared. Throughout this series, I'll be joined by a variety of experts and we'll be exploring what happens to our business, wealth, kids, things and even your body. Today, we're talking to what happens to your kids when you die. My guest for this episode is Simon Fuller, a barrister who practices in a range of areas, including commercial, employment, administrative, and of course, family law. Prior to coming to the bar, Simon was a solicitor at a prominent family law firm in Melbourne. He regularly appears in interim hearings and trials in family law matters in both the family court and the federal circuit court, and has a particular interest in equitable disputes involving property. Welcome, Simon. Thank you, Anna. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Well, this is one of those episodes that I think has been one of the most requested topics. I think it's one that we had thought from the very start of doing the podcast series would be one of the most important topics to talk about. And I think that's because when people come in from an estate planning point of view to do their will, one of the first things that they ask about is what happens to my kids when I die? For obvious reasons, people, okay, the money's one thing, it's important, they want to structure things to make sure that their beneficiaries looked after. But it's so critical to understand what happens to your children and people are often a little surprised when I give the answer that I usually give and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But from a family law point of view, and this is an interesting part because it intersects between my area of law and your area of law, mm. What is it that happens immediately after someone passes away to their children? Well, it's it's an interesting issue and it's, it's an issue that causes people a lot of stress and anxiety and understandably so. Um, the uh, I think it'd be interesting to talk about the historical um, side of things in, in, in an attempt to answer that question. Um, if you go back many, many decades, um, we have this common law concept that the father and not the mother um, is the natural guardian of a child for the lifetime um, of the of the father. Um, very outdated principle. And so the statute has stepped in to change that. Um, in Victoria, we had uh, a piece of legislation called the Marriage Act. And more recently, we've got a federal piece of um, legislation called the Family Law Act. And um, what the Family Law Act does is it, in certain circumstances, um, it allows people to litigate about a child's arrangements. It talks about this concept of um, parental responsibility, and we, we should go into that issue in a bit more detail. Um, and uh, one of the biggest things in, in that um, uh, forum is this concept of what's in a child's best interests. And that as a term has something which has always permeated this discussion about what do we do with this particular child. Um, and as I say, there's sort of, we have this um, interesting intersection between the state law and the concept of um, guardianships and its relations uh, with with wills, and then you have this interesting uh, and the intersection with uh, federal law and the Family Law Act and 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 what that what you can and can't do through that avenue. Mm. So it's an interesting concept, and I and I mentioned this concept of the of the common law, and we had the passing of legislation in Victoria. I mentioned the Marriage Act that was in 1958 piece of legislation. Now, curiously, um, despite its title, um, that's a, uh, I should say that's a, a Victorian piece of legislation, despite its title, it has absolutely nothing to do with marriage anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> over the years, various bits, uh, various clauses have been pulled out and, and, and that's um, dealt with by, there's a, there's a federal statute called the Marriage Act and it's also dealt with by the Family Law Act. Um, there's a very similar 
uh, a piece of legislation in New South Wales, and that's the Guardianship of Infants Act 1916. And both of these bits of legislation um, together with uh, the similar statutes in the other states and territories in Australia are, are, are active and they're live. And I might first, I'll talk about this Victorian Marriage Act and we've got a terrible name and it probably shouldn't be called that, but we've got this concept and, and, and as I said, this, this will permeate the, the discussion of this very issue, what happens with my children when I die. We've got this, this concept in section 133, which says in any proceeding before the court um, in, uh, about a child's issue, the court in deciding that question shall regard the welfare of the, of the minor as the first and paramount consideration. And this won't be the first time that I say this today. Um, and the next section, 135, which is where um, this issue um, intersects with wills. Mm. Um, and this was um, something you mentioned before. And, and the legislation says on the death of the father or mother of a minor, that parent shall, subject to um, the provisions of this part, be guardian of the minor, either alone or jointly with any guardian appointed by the father or mother. So in, in a, let's take your traditional um, relationship, um, husband and wife, um, uh, in the absence of a will, the other parent is taken to be the guardian mm. on the death um, of the deceased. And is and is that um, re- irregardless of whether the the pa- the parents are married or whether they're separated? Does is there so there is a presumption that the other parent will be the guardian of the child? There is irregardless of whether the children are nuptial or ex-nuptial children. Mm-hmm. And, oh, and, and we should explain what nuptial and ex-nuptial means because we we, we should because this is something which um, is is irrelevant to the, um, these days, but it was very relevant in the development of our legal system. Um, a, 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 ch- a nuptial child is one born of a married relationship and an ex-nuptial child is one born outside that. Um, for example, a de facto relationship or even a, a, a one-night stand, for mm. example. Mm. And the law today um, says there's no difference between those children. Um, but historically there was. H- historically there was and that's for there, there, there are some stigmas that were attached to ex-nuptial children um, and I think um, history wasn't particularly nice to those children. Um, that's a very different thing today, that there is no difference. And Mm. this um, Victorian uh, Act and indeed the Family Law Act makes no distinction. And so that's that's the position by default. And then that's able to be changed by by deed or by will. And so either parent can um, make a declaration in their will who they would like to appoint as a guardian of their child. Mm. Um, I say guardian... um, uh, guardian means, um, well, guardianship rather means um, all of the rights and duties that a parent have to their child by law. So mm. these are decision-making powers. Mm. Um, both of the parents can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to appoint one person alone. Mm-hmm. You don't have to appoint um, your uh, the, the your spouse. Um, obviously, when you're thinking of making an appointment, there's a, a whole range of things you need to take into account. Um, and let's say, for example, you want to appoint um, your your sibling, you're a parent, um, you're a separated parent, perhaps. Um, you want to appoint your sibling. You An ideal appointment would be um, a situation where that sibling has very similar views to you in terms of um, how to raise the child. Perhaps mm. they have children of their own. Um, perhaps th- their children are very close to your children. That would be an ideal situation. Um, there's, there's some financial considerations as well, and we can talk about that later. Um, 
the you, if, if there's to be an appointment of more than one guardian, you suddenly have this concept of, well, what happens if these two people don't agree? Mm. And that is always when things get nasty yeah. and, and will be probably the subject of a lot yeah. of our discussion yeah. today. <laughs> and certainly is a subject of discussion when it comes to probably any part of estate planning and, and why we always talk about or either having potentially a, a, um, a deal breaker, so maybe don't have equal numbers of people. When it comes to guardian of kids, though, it is really difficult, I think, to have two people who maybe you even think already they have different views. Um, it's an interesting idea, though, that the the will gets to say where the child might be living in the future. So I guess if we just go back to that and, and, and the question of what happens if someone's passed away immediately, so does that mean the will just takes over at that point? Um, or is that, does there have to be something that comes in to actually um, guides the, the best interest of the child, as you talked about? Is it that the will just takes precedence over everything? It, the, you need a grant of probate, um, and, and that's more for the property side um, uh, of the will. But in, in a very simple world, yes, that um, would take effect in accordance with the terms of the will. But, and this is probably... A big but. <laughs> this is the, it's, a, it's a big but. It's a but in capital letters. Um, it's not binding. Mm. So um, in the circumstance of a challenge, and this is really the situations that we're talking about, a non-perfect world, um, it, it's, it's going to be a relevant piece of information, but it won't be the be-all and end-all. And I suspect that that's something that people... Uh, don't understand or, or perhaps um, um, are disappointed mm. when they find that out. Absolutely. I mean, I think from my point of view, I guess I'm lucky because my whole role as an estate planning lawyer is that I get to plan and hope that the the, the perfect set of circumstances will, will be in front of someone when they're planning for the future in their lifetime and also far after they pass away. But unfortunately, what we see is the, those non-perfect situations. And so I think the biggest shock I have, in a, apart from when people think, oh, my goodness, the ta superannuation is taxed, is that <laughs> the children will not automatically go to where the guardian listed in their will says. And this is something that I must admit I've had fights with clients because they are so positive. I mean, all the movies show it. They show people having to travel over from France and take children back to Paris. Isn't that what happens? That the will says the children are going to live with Aunt Bessie over in Paris. Doesn't that mean that that's just automatically going to be what's lucky, happening? But lucky you're children. I know, very lucky. <laughs> if they can financially afford that too, I guess that's different. But no, I, I, that's not in it's, reality. It's, it's not. And look, if, if Aunt Betty. Was it Aunt Betty Bessie. in France? Aunt Bessie. <laughs> I chose a really Mademoiselle, old name. <laughs> Mademoiselle Betty, we should probably Not call Not a French her, name. Um, yep. <laughs> living in, in, in Paris is the only available person. Um, that will probably be the case. Um, but the, the, the court will certainly take into account the effect on the child of removing them from their, their life in Australia, their friendships, the connections they've made, their mates at school, um, uh, there's the general Australian environment and, and, and throwing them into um, France, for example, mm. which is a very different cultural scene, different language, um, different rules apply, it, and it would be a very uh, significant thing to do. But, but yes, it's, it's possible. Anything's possible. Um, and but, but not probably the most likely outcome if there's other 
people willing and able yes. a- and probably in the ch- children's best interest yes. to live with. And there will mm. be a review. And, and, and again, we're talking in, in the circumstance where there's, there's a challenge to the declaration that's made in the will. Um, there will be a review, an analysis, a comparison of these competing individuals who are putting their hand up to say, Hi, hey, I will be guardian. And I use that, I'm going to use that word very loosely. Um, I will be guardian of this child. And when you're talking about this analysis, is is that people just getting around a table and talking or is that a more formal process? Um, that's the starting point. And probably this is where we should start talking about the Family Law Act, um, what it does, when it applies, who can apply under it, um, and, and, and what are the rules for things like frank discussions, uh, alternative dispute resolution, things like that. So the Family Law Act is, um, I mentioned it before, a piece of legislation, and Part 7 of that Act deals with children. No distinction between nuptial and ex-nuptial children. Now, it has a number of fundamental concepts in it, and we have stopped using the words of custody or guardian, mm. um, access. Um, it, it's It's very much the, the, the drafting of the legislation is very much being guided by social science research um, and that is very important and it will remain um, important in the future after we have the reforms of the family law jurisdiction in Australia. So we have this fundamental concept, which I think is the, the first thing we should talk about, is, which is parental responsibility. Um, that is, uh, it, it re- refers to um, a legal power to make decisions for a child. Now, that's not whether they're going to have peanut butter on their toast. So everyday decisions like that are are innocuous and completely irrelevant to this concept. It it refers to very much um, long-term decisions in a child's life. Okay, so whether they'll be baptised, what religion um, they will follow, uh, what school will they go to, any very serious medical procedures. By default, the law says both parents of a child have uh, shared parental responsibility. Now, that can be changed by a court, um, and that's um, the, the, often the subject of a, of a lot of litigation. And, <laughs> and quite uh, passionate litigation, I, I think, as well. And, and, and quite passionate litigation. Um, the, the next concept that I think is relevant is, is this concept of a parenting order, and that's the ability of a court um, under the Family Law Act to make an order in relation to a, um, in relation to a child. Um, ordinarily, um, 90 plus percent of the cases, those orders are made in relation to the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have to be, however. Um, there are many examples of um, grandparents intervening in these proceedings, for example, um, uh, aunts and uncles, and these are the situations really that, that we're talking about and that we need to understand. Um, so that's the concept of a parenting order. I think the other concept that's really useful is and, and, and I think this is a common misconception, is this issue of parental rights or grandparent rights mm. or aunt and uncle rights or, or, or whoever you are. Now, um, again, this is very much being guided by the social science research and we've moved away from a view of, of, of parental rights. There's actually no such thing. Um, the Family Law Act talks about the rights of the child to have a meaningful relationship with both parents um, also, there's consideration given to relationships with other members of their family. Um, and it, it really talks about the obligations of parents. So it's mm. an interesting, it's a different way to look at it's it. It's a different mindset and a shift from 
as you said, the not using words like custody and um, access mm. to what actually is in the best interests of this child and let's focus on the child and their relationships. Um, I think it's a really critical change. I don't think a lot of society has moved with that concept of the way they think about children um, and the um, obviously we don't think of them as a possession but that kind of was that old thinking, I think, you know, can I have access to the property. And I think that, I think those perceptions and, and, and they still still exist as you mm. say and I think they're guided and informed by American television shows Probably. as is many aspects of our life. Many aspects of our area, both our areas of law. All yeah. of those legal shows that show people suddenly standing up and and changing the outcome of a, a child's child's life or or a, a state litigation. It's it's definitely made our lives I think a little bit difficult to explain how this is different in Australia. And I think that if we we get advice, then hopefully we have the right path. But you probably deal with situations where people have, they don't understand the, the legal background. Mm. Unfortunately, the situations I tend to see uh, as a barrister, that, that they're at the worst end of things yeah. because everything has broken down. Um, all of this, the, the, the reasonable steps that you would expect to be taken prior to litigation have, have been done and exhausted and people have... Um, uh, they're, they're backed into the corner and, and they, they, they are some pretty unfortunate situations. Mm. And so in most cases what you would, um, and I'm I, not having been involved in this but trying to explain to my clients when they're trying to plan for the future, we talk about, okay, we can put who your preference is in, a, in the will, whether that is going to happen or not is going to be dependent on the circumstances at the time. And that could be very different for a really young child versus a child who's 16, who, who can probably have a bit of a say in what actually happens and, and where they might live. And so your wishes are very much wishes. They're not binding. If everyone's around a table and can agree, that's wonderful. I'm presuming then is there still a need for a court order in that circumstance? If, if both parents have passed away and there's a child that um, is going to be living with someone, um, is, that a, is there a need for a court order in that circumstance? There, there is actually, mm. um, because if both parents have passed away, and let's say there's a, a sister, for example, mum's sister um, has put her hand up and say, "I'll look after these two children." Uh, there's going to be a number of um, events in these children's life where um, she will will need to show that she has the legal authority to mm -hmm. make decisions, um, and that's where she has to go to the family court or the federal circuit court. They're the two main courts that have jurisdiction under the Family Law Act. Um, she'll have to go to them and get an order. Now, um, that uh, can be uh, <laughs> all litigations in a bit of a spectrum. At the extreme ends of things, you've got um, a lot of money and, and a horrible trial and, and, and um, people end up quite bitter, but, but it doesn't have to be there. Um, that can be done by consent. Mm. So, for example, let's say that the, the only um, available living relative in these two children's life is her brother, um, uh, which would also be mum's brother as well, um, sister and brother can enter into consent orders um, and uh, uh, that can be done by the court with, with relative degree of ease. Um, like with probably any consent orders in, in your jurisdiction because if everyone agrees, you just want to make sure you have, as you said, you know, when you go to school, when you go to other places that need that evidence of who you are in relation to this child, well, you need something to prove that. And so even if everyone agrees, you still need the physical document that can be attached to the enrolment form for, for kids um, 
activities or the, or the schooling. So, so that's good when it all works. It's when it doesn't work. <laughs> yes. that's enough. But as you said, there will be many instances. So um, to apply for a passport, the passport office is, office is very strict about this issue. Um, schools. Uh, thankfully, the passport probably you don't want your some some random person accessing a, a passport that's for your true. child. <laughs> yeah, and that's a whole other issue. But yes, <laughs> but they're very strict about it. Schools are very strict about it. Um, if you're applying for any government grants, um, the, the, you're going to have to have to show some legal doc- documentation that you have been um, uh, given um, parental responsibility um, for this child or these children. And the will isn't going to be. That legal, even it, it is a legal document, but it's not the legal document that will be required in this case. No. And I think that that is extremely surprising to most of the clients I see. It's probably very frustrating at the point for your clients when you see them because they um, thought that it would be a lot more straightforward um, when there is conflict. But it's also something that listeners are probably a little bit shocked as they're listening to this because. So many people, whenever I say, why did you get a will done? I just wanted to make sure I could confirm who the guardian for my kids are. And it's quite scary when they realise that not only does the post office will not confirm exactly who the guardian of their children are, but unfortunately, as much as I as an estate planning lawyer can give advice about how to structure things, that doesn't necessarily flow to I can confirm exactly who the guardian of a child is. And so how is it that people can actually plan, um, and I'm not going to say guarantee because this is definitely not an area in which we can ever guarantee what will happen with children because it is always about that fundamental right of the child to have their best interests looked after. probably used all of the wrong wording there actually because it's very, the law is a funny thing. It has very specific words for, um, for that have legal meaning, but best interest of the child is definitely critical. If you are trying to plan to make sure and in most cases, it's not about who does have the um, the role of guardian. And unfortunately, in our area, we still do use the word guardian. But it's um, more about who you don't want to have access. Uh, and I, I think that's probably a really good idea um, to do those two things. And, and yes, they still won't be binding, but they would be admissible in court as evidence if there's to be a dispute down the track. So if there's particular um, family members of yours that you know in the event of your death would put their hands up, but um, for whatever reason you form the view that that would be a particularly unpalatable situation. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And we're not, even though Simon is saying you, he's not meaning me, so my mother-in-law and father-in-law can be assured I'm not meaning me. I mean, one, But let's say hypothetically I didn't want particular family members to be involved in the um, the guardianship of my children. Um, you probably cringe whenever you hear me say the word guardianship. We say it in estate planning, but I think in, in family law, it's just not the terminology that's used. But um, I would give advice that you should write as much down about why those people are not the ideal people to have in those roles. And as you've said, that's not necessarily the be on an end all, but it's some evidence. What sort of information, though, do people even put in these documents? Well, um, and again, not guaranteeing that this will mean. No, we, I don't like <laughs> lawyers. Don't like the no, word guarantee. Exactly. It's, it's a terrible word. <laughs> what sort of um, what what can we say? How can we minimise the chance of um, your preferred guardian, um, your non-preferred guardian, getting access? It would be useful to have a document that sets out um, who these people are that you you um, particularly do not want. Um, to have a parenting order um, made in their favour 
um, identify who they are, why it is. And it might be as simple as um, they're a different religion to you. And that's okay. Um, that's that's absolutely fine. It's probably a, a rel- something. It is something that the court will consider. Absolutely, absolutely. And 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 this is probably where we should talk about this concept of best interests. Um, it's a very broad concept. Um, the Family Law Act says in making any decision about a child, it is the paramount consideration. And I took you to that section before in the Victorian Marriage Act, and it's been repeated here, and it is repeated time and time again in all legislation across the states and territories and even at a federal level when we're dealing with children. It's this concept of best interest. Now, it's a very broad concept. Um, in in um, Under the Family Law Act, there's primary considerations and secondary considerations, and, and the two primary considerations are the benefit to the child um, of having a meaningful relationship with the child's parents um, and also the, the, the right to be protected from harm. Sometimes th- those conflict. We're not so worried about um, the, the um, benefit of having a relationship with the child's parents in this circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, then we move on to the, the additional considerations or the secondary considerations, and there's a whole lot of them, but they include things like the nature of the child's relationship with other people. Um, that's going to be relevant, um, particularly if you're someone that's wanting to make an application. You're a grandparent, you're an aunt, you're an uncle. Um, you, you, you could be a new partner. Um, mm. of the deceased. Um, so the nature of that relationship is is um, very relevant. The extent to which you've been involved in, in this child's life, uh, the likely, and this is an important one, the likely effect of any changes in the child's circumstances, and this is why um, when you brought up that situation of moving to France, that's an immediate thing that pops into yeah. my mind is this is going to be a huge change for this child. Um, the practical difficulty and expense of a child spending time uh, or communicating with this particular person, uh, the capacity of this particular person to provide for the child's needs, um, and that could be relevant um, in a situation where the child might have, a, for example, an intellectual disability um, or, or, or um, a, a, a learning issue. Uh, the maturity, sex, lifestyle, background um, of the child and also um, of this particular individual. Um, uh, the other very significant thing that's important is um, the, the existence of any family violence. Mm. And so these are some of the concepts, some of the considerations the court's got to look at um, um, when it's working out, well, what's in the best interest of this child? Who should I um, give parental responsibility to? And remember that that's an allocation of a decision-making power. Um, and how often should these child or children spend time with the various people in their life. And, and the situation, the, the classic example is, is one where um, a, um, let's say, deceased mother has um, made a declaration in her will that she wants um, her brother um, to, to be the guardian of the children, not, not her spouse. Mm. They've separated. Yes. Um, you then have this fight in the Federal Circuit Court or the Family Court between the remaining parent, who's the father in this instance, and the brother. There could be 10 years' worth of family fights, spats, could be intervention orders, could be um, allegations of violence. Uh, the, 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 it could be a situation where the child or one of the children rejects the father um, or indeed rejects um, the uncle. Um, these are all of the things that are relevant. And unfortunately, this is where the emotion comes into it, yes. and, and where people's um, where people's um, expectations uh, are very relevant, 
um, one of the very useful tools that the court has um, at its disposal um, are family consultants. And um, Australia is leading the way in this respect, but um, essentially the family consultants are child psychologists um, or social workers that have undergone special training um, in relation to this issue of uh, child psychology and what happens after the breakdown of a relationship. Um, they will um, interview you, they will interview the relevant people. Um, they'll interview the children provided they're at a sufficient age and a sufficient maturity to be able to express a view and they prepare a report. Um, and those reports are uh, th obviously not binding, but they are a very useful piece of expert evidence um, that a judge can read and it will inform the judge's view as to what's in this child's best interest. Mm. And that's, I, I am not a family law lawyer, but I have done a little bit of family law. And I recall doing these reports in situations where there'd been a relationship breakdown. And certainly, um, as you say, not binding, it's not the be all and end all of, an, um, of a proceeding, but it certainly is something where someone's come in from an independent viewpoint and they do look at um, the the different people in the child's life from an independent um, position, and that's an interesting thing in our our court system because in Australia we have a, a more of an adversarial court um, approach where we have a judge who makes a decision and and each side puts their um, position forward. But other um, jurisdictions, other countries have um, an inquisitorial um, approach, which means that they do come together and, and put together. Um, to the court sort of joint material and it's almost it's almost like that because it, both parties agree to the the um, that that report being done and, and appoint the same person so it's certainly I could imagine though in a situation where you have both parents have passed away could be very complicated if you have a lot of people putting their hand up and all saying this is I'm the I'm in I'm the person that has the best, the child's best interest at heart, and then having someone making a decision, which is, I guess, where the will can be useful. But um, I would imagine that it really isn't informative enough to really guide guide in in one particular direction. It has to be. It, it's one piece of evidence. Yeah. It's a relevant piece of evidence, and that's why I think it's very important that people do do it. They nominate someone, and, and they do this extra document where they nominate people that they consider might be particularly problematic. Definitely relevant. Um, it, it depends on every fact and circumstance. As humans, um, by our very nature, we're, we're very different. Um, the, the law can't ever uh, be black and white. It can't say this is what you do in this situation. Mm. And, and the judge will have to have a look at, well, who are all of these people that are putting their hand up? Um, uh, the judge will have to sit down and look through all those factors that I spoke about in, in, in the Family Law Act. And, and, and that usually provides... Um, an answer. Most of the time, it will provide a clear answer. Um, sure, there'll be a minority of situations um, where it might be the judge says, well, you two people have to work together and I'm going to give parental responsibility to um, grandparent one on this side and, and grandparent two on the other side. Um, the judge would have to be satisfied that those two people can walk, work together in order to do that. Um, but that's something that, that that can happen, and that's also something that when people are actually planning their will, they need to think about. Don't appoint people that don't get along, mm. because it is that the court is unlikely if there's a knowledge that these people can't get along to appoint two people that they know is just they're going to cause issues um, with the conflict within within that arrangement. So it's it is important to think about 
how will this practically work? How can we actually see this operating in, well, operating in the future? That makes it sound a bit too um, technical, but how can they actually look after the child's best interest if they're all, of the, all they're doing is arguing? The other side for um, to this issue is we've got the, the person that's actually looking after the child, um, but we also have to think about how it is, and you talked about, you touched on this before, how, how is the, um, the financial side of things going to be handled? We talk about wills and having um, not just an executor, but the executor also needs to think about who um, they, how they will distribute money to children. Now, one bit of advice I usually have for people is it's usually not the best idea to have the listed guardian in your will as the same person as your executor, because then you have someone in charge of the money and making decisions for the child. And one question I have often is, well, but what happens before the child? I've, I've said that the children can inherit when they're 18. What happens before that? And this is probably more of a, an estate question, so I'm happy to take it on notice. But do you often have um, orders around the financial side after someone's passed away? Uh, yes. There's two mechanisms for handling that. Um, uh, assuming that there isn't a pot of money available, so assuming that the will doesn't create a testamentary trust um, uh, there's this concept called a child maintenance trust, which can be created by will or by deed. It has certain tax effective um, uh, issues, and that's a useful thing to think about. But assuming that's not relevant, there's sort of two mechanisms. There's this concept of child maintenance and a concept of child support. You know, you'd think they're the same thing, but of course they they're not. They sound the same. They sound <laughs> the same. <laughs> the purpose is the same. It is is to um, uh, obtain a binding mechanism at law um, for the provision of finances for a child. So um, I think the, the, the best one to talk about is child support. It is a government-regulated regime. Um, there's two pieces of legislation, the Child Support Assessment Act and the Child Support Registration and Collection Act. Um, nine times out of ten, that applies. Mum and dad separate. Mum or dad can go to the relevant government department, which is called the Child Support Agency. It's a division of the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, they can go and apply for what's called an assessment. Now, that's um, like an order from a court. You can consider it in that way. And um, the Child Support Agency will, will look at mum and dad's in income and how often the child spends time with mum and dad. Um, and it, it's a very formulaic approach. There's, there's a specific formula, and, and, and God knows what it is, but there's a very specific formula that the agency uses, and that spits out a number. Um, and it'll depend on a variety of things. Now, that can be used in certain specific circumstances where um, either mum or dad are no longer alive, and there is a non, what's called a non-parent carer wishes to make an application. Um, that, 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 is, that is possible. Um, you have to be what's called an eligible carer, and this is where we start getting into com complexities of law. Um, uh, but that's um, that's at least shared care. So, and the legislation talks about this concept of having the children for at least thirty-five percent of the time. Um, and you also can't be living with the other parent. So that might apply quite neatly in a situation where, let's say, um, for example, the father has passed away, um, uh, father's sister um, wishes to. Uh, have a parenting order made in her favour um, and she's also going to need some money to raise these children. And it might be a situation where mum has had some some issues, for example, um, maybe there's a, there's a mental health issue and mum's probably not the right person for the children to be living with, um, al although mum has 
some capital assets or mum has a steady source of income um, from which child support um, can, can be taken. So in this instance, aunt comes along and says to the child support agency, um, hey, I'm an eligible carer. I've got these orders from the family court in my favour, granting me parental responsibility. And they also say that the children live with me most of the time and you know see mum every second weekend or something like that. That would be the appropriate situation where the um, child support agency could say, okay, we're going to make an assessment in your favour. And the agency will look at aunt's income, will look at mum's income um, and assets to determine um, what, what an appropriate uh, and, and equitable division or, or, or assessment of child support would be. Mm. So that's the concept of child support. Then we have this other concept, which, is, which isn't used that much, and, and, and it's a um, cause of action under the Family Law Act of child maintenance. And a little bit complicated, but, but essentially it applies when the child support regime doesn't apply. So there might be some kinds of um, non-parent carers that don't fall within the child support regime. It might be that you're living in another country and um, for whatever reason, you um, still fall within the jurisdiction of the family court, but not under the child support regime. Um, its purpose is, is very similar. It, um, and, and, and that's an avenue through the courts. Mm. Um, so it's not as efficient as the child support regime, um, but it, it, it exists to supplant the, the child support regime. Mm. And I think that it's, re- I, I still remember speaking to clients around um, the child support and ac- it, it was access when I did family, family law that we don't, as we said, we don't use that terminology now, but if there was any time when they had, when a, when a parent had time with the children, it's not that you pay for the ability to see a child. It is actually separate, but obviously if someone's in a child's life, then they do look at, well, what are the needs of having to support that child at that time as well? And that's where if there is also an estate, so there's the money coming from a deceased estate and maybe there is a trust set up, but you do need to make sure that you don't, that that you have sufficient protection in place that the person who is looking after the child full time and actually can pay money out to themselves potentially as a guardian um, isn't the only person making decisions about the long-term welfare of the, the financial welfare of that child because you might have as we say, Dracula in charge of the blood bank. You, you don't want the same people doling out the money as making the decisions about whether it should actually be spent. And, so. and ideally, I agree with that. And ideally, those two people would be able to work well together because Absolutely. you want a situation where this individual who's, who's going to be the care for these child or children to be able to say, hey, um, you know, Grandpa Joe, I've got uh, a, a school fee due at the end of this semester of $5,000. Um, I can't afford it. I think that's something that falls within this trust. Um, can we make some arrangements? Mm. And I think it's very important, and this is part of your decision making um, that you have to do with all things to do with your estate. Um, it's it's exactly the same issue. You're you're looking ahead and you're thinking, well, how are these two people going to work together? Mm. And I feel like um, this topic we said at the start was such a big one. I feel like we've covered a lot already today. Is there anything else that you think that listeners need to know right now? Um, Or it might be the case that, Simon, you think you need to come back and have another episode because I do think that this is going to be quite a popular one. Um, But is there anything else you want to leave listeners with today? I think um, we spoke about some of the misconceptions and and mistakes, and I I think they're very um, important. I think another um, misconception that I want to say is that um, 
not all family court litigation is horrible and horrendous. Um, I, I see the horrible and horrendous end, end of it, but I've also seen some very pleasant ones. And I think one thing is is probably hope for the best, plan for the worst, and, and this should be a relevant consideration for all things in life, of course. Um, but it, 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 it doesn't have to be um, horrible. It It is most of the time not horrible and most of the time people are able to come to arrangements between themselves by consent. Um, the other thing I think would be really useful and because we're talking at a very high level today is just to mention some sources of information for people if, if they Brilliant. want to go and do their own yes. homework. Um, there's a couple of ones that I really like. We spoke about um, concepts of child support and child maintenance just then. The Child Support Agency has a fantastic website and they've also got an, a guide um, which is a lot of legalese, but that's sometimes really useful. Um, so you can Google that one. The Fitzroy Legal Service has um, a, what's called the Law Handbook. And I still remember that one, actually. It's fantastic. It's got <laughs> everything. 15, 20 years on. Yep. And it's still going. It's still and going. It's, it is a marvellous book and it's a great service and it provides a very high-level understanding of things. And, and if we haven't covered any of those concepts today on a broader level, that's something that's really useful to look at. Um, and, and the other useful way of um, getting some information is through the Law Institute Referral Service. Um, Law Institute of Victoria is a governing body for lawyers um, and they have a referral service which gets you, I think it's half an hour, an hour free. Um, and if you're unsure about some things, that's a really useful way to obtain 30, 60 minutes of, of free advice. Yeah, and I believe that most of the state's um, law societies have similar um, ways of people getting in touch with lawyers and the referral service is very very handy because it also allows you not just to get some questions answered, but also make sure that you the the person that you are talking to is the right fit. Because in in this sort of an area, you need to make sure that you have um, the feeling that the <laughs> the lawyers are always on your side if they're acting for you. But there's people that fit better with certain types of people, and I think that it, the referral service is a great resource. We can put links to all of the um, resources that Simon just mentioned in our show notes, um, and I'm sure that we will have lots of questions following this episode. So thank you so much, Simon. A lot to think about. The most important thing is absolutely that last point. Communication and planning mm. is absolutely key. So thank you so much for your insights. Really thank appreciate you, it. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. So from historical origins to current circumstances, understanding what happens to kids when parents pass away has evolved to look at the best interests of the child as it should be. The paramount consideration must always be the needs of the child. And while Simon explained wishes in a will can be relevant, it is not the only thing that a court will consider. As with everything we talk about on this podcast, planning is critical and making sure you've had thorough discussions with anyone you're wanting to list as a guardian for your children is really important. Make sure that it's not like in the movies, your kids won't be sent overseas, you need to actually get advice about this. As always, dear listeners, make sure if you have a moment to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast, it'll keep you up to date on everything that's happening in What Happens When I Die. If you also have a question, please feel free to send it through to whwid at australianunity.com.au. Thanks for listening. 